Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible is the world's largest producer of spoken audio entertainment, with over 150,000 downloadable audiobooks to choose from. You can support this show by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography and signing up for a free 30-day trial and get a free audiobook download. There's no obligation to continue the service, and you can cancel at any time and even keep the free book as their gift to you. This week I'm going to recommend Sarah Val's Lafayette and the Somewhat United States. Val applies her usual wit and humor to Lafayette's legacy in early 19th century America as the last surviving general of the Continental Army, who belonged to neither section nor party, but served as a reminder of the sacrifices and bravery of the revolutionary generation and what the founders hoped America could be. So after you're done listening to this episode, please go visit www audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is the life of John Marshall, Episode 17, It Must Be Done. Last episode, we had a terrific discussion with Zach Twomley about the international situation forming the backdrop of the XYZ affair, and also got to talk a good deal about the domestic politics that confronted Marshall as he returned home from Europe. Throughout his ordeal in Paris, John had been sending dispatches to Philadelphia in an attempt to keep Secretary Pickering and President Adams in the loop as much as 18th century transatlantic correspondence allowed. Adams had initially kept the content of those dispatches secret, but once he had to notify the Congress of the failure of the diplomatic mission, a cacophony of Republican remonstrances demanded the President release them to the public. As Republicans were positive, they contained some information that would prove damaging to the administration and the Federalist Party. Oh, how wrong they were. Marshall's detailing of the French government's moral turpitude and rank disrespect for the United States and its representatives caused a sensational anti-French backlash in American public opinion. The energy and support the Republicans had largely enjoyed, stemming from the controversial Jay Treaty, 
which had been sustained by a general anti-British sentiment in the populace, was almost entirely rolled back and replaced by outrage and animosity towards the French and translated into electoral support for the Federalists, the extreme wing of which, often referred to as the High Federalists, or Ultras, were falling all over themselves to declare war on France. This group confidently expected Marshall's support in achieving that end when he disembarked in New York in June 1798, and his endorsement would certainly have been a boon to their cause, because when Marshall's feet finally fell on American soil for the first time in a year, he was a certified national hero. The High Federalists were quickly disappointed as Marshall, though he was of course none too pleased by his treatment in France, did not for an instant think that the mission's treatment there justified going to war, nor did he believe that France wanted war with the United States. Therefore, to John, all this talk of war was foolish, and he made it known that he would not support a war predicated thusly. John then booked passage on the next coach to Philadelphia in order to confer with Adams and Pickering. Six miles outside the capital, his coach was met by the Secretary of State, along with an honor guard of cavalry and other dignitaries, and together they processed towards Philadelphia, where an artillery regiment announced Marshall's arrival, accompanied by a flourish of church bells. A congressional gala was organized in his honor, and he also received numerous tributes from civic organizations and social clubs expressing their approval of his conduct in Paris. Even Vice President Jefferson sought Marshall out, missing him at his hotel on two separate occasions, before finally sending along a short, slightly dickish note to let John know that Jefferson couldn't attend the dinner being held in Marshall's honor, and also letting him know that the Vice President had swung by twice. But, and the details are important here, quote, was so lucky as to find, end quote, Marshall out on both occasions. Jefferson apparently caught the fact that he'd written the wrong thing, but rather than bothering to hide this clear Freudian slip, just jammed, un, right there before Lucky. Family lore would have us believe that Marshall later said of his cousin Tom's note, before editing, that this was one occasion Jefferson had come near to telling the truth. But unfortunately, there's nothing in the written record to support this rather great burn. Once the feast in his honor was through, on June 25, 1789, Marshall set off by public coach for Winchester, Virginia, where Polly was still recuperating under the watchful eyes of family following the birth of their son John. He arrived three days later to find, in Smith's words, Polly bedridden and still under the care of a physician. In many respects, Polly's affliction was as much emotional as physical. She suffered from a profound melancholy, which her husband's extended absence made worse. Although not an invalid, Polly remained a recluse for the remainder of her life. In the years ahead, she did not entertain, rarely left her bedroom, and remained extremely sensitive to the slightest noise or commotion. Here they resided until August, when Polly was finally well enough to return with him to Richmond. Before entering the city, he was met by the governor, 
along with a host of other important state officials and distinguished persons, and was this time escorted by both a company of horse and infantry, and again saluted by cannon fire. Then John did what anybody would do after walking away from their career for a year, try to pick up the pieces. In an August 11th letter to Pickering, he pressed the Secretary of State for prompt payment of what was owed for the extended diplomatic mission, writing, The derangements produced by my absence and the dispersion of my family oblige me to make either sales, which I do not wish, or to delay payment of money which I ought not to delay, unless I can receive payment from the Treasury. Luckily, Marshall's salary for the mission had been incredibly generous, and even after expenses, netted him $13,000, which was more than the Vice President and Secretary of State took home in a year combined. This allowed him to stabilize his current financial obligations, but he still needed to try to rebuild his shattered law practice. A daunting task, even for someone without distraction. However, domestic politics allowed Marshall to be anything but focused in the summer and fall of 1798. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nationally, military spending had been on the uptick since the speech Adams gave to Congress in 1797 that had so offended Talleyrand and the Directory. But in July of 1798, hawkish High Federalists had passed a bill which dramatically expanded the United States' standing army. Adams had given command of this force to the aging and retired Washington, who, apparently not planning on leaving Mount Vernon, only accepted on the condition that Alexander Hamilton could be his number two a condition that Adams very reluctantly agreed to. Amidst what seemed an inexorable march to war in the heat of that summer, the Federalists in control of Congress grew dizzy with zeal and passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, the first of which allowed the President to detain and deport any subject of a hostile nation in the event of a war, 
and the second criminalized speech that was critical of the United States government or its officials. Marshall was appalled by these laws, not only for their substance, but also because they provided the down-and-out Republicans with an issue to rally around. Against this backdrop, at the beginning of September, Marshall had some business to take care of at the Frederick County Courthouse. Knowing his route would take him by Mount Vernon, Marshall had written in advance to see if Washington would be in residence, and if so, could John stop by and pay his respects. Washington quickly replied that he would be delighted by such a visit. John arrived on September 3rd and learned that another Richmond attorney, whom he was friendly with, Bushrod Washington, George's nephew, had also arrived that day. John and Bushrod soon found themselves at the receiving end of lectures from the former president about the coming 1799 congressional elections. Marshall wrote, General Washington urged the importance of the crisis. Every man who could contribute to the success of sound opinion was required by the most sacred duty to offer his services to the public. Washington wanted the two young Federalists to run for Congress in April, and essentially ordered his nephew's compliance, saying, Bushrod, it must be done. And of course, poor Bushrod agreed, because when your family's patriarch is essentially a demigod, that's what you do. But Marshall, though, as you may recall, was a practiced hand at turning Washington down. So Marshall declined, later writing, I told him that I had made large pecuniary engagements, which required close attention to my profession, and which would distress me should the emoluments derived from it be abandoned. But Washington wouldn't let up. He scolded Marshall the next evening, and there's indications that despite his great respect for the former president, John had had just about enough. So the following morning, he woke up before dawn, in order to head out so as to avoid any further unpleasantness between himself and Washington. But as he stepped out onto the front porch, he ran right smack dab into the man he was trying to avoid. Some reports say Washington was dressed in his old military uniform. And yes, George loved grand theatrical gestures, but I think these accounts are later garnishments because in his autobiographical sketch, Marshall writes in some detail about the conversation and doesn't mention that fact. John wrote, He, meaning Washington, had withdrawn from office with a declaration of his determination never again, under any circumstances, to enter public life. No man could be more sincere in that declaration, nor could any man feel stronger motives for adhering to it. No man could make a stronger sacrifice than he did in breaking that resolution, thus publicly made, and which he had believed to be unalterable. Yet I saw him, in opposition to his public declaration, in opposition to his private feelings, consenting under a sense of duty to surrender the sweets of retirement, and again to enter the most arduous and perilous station which an individual could fill. My resolution yielded to his representation, and I became a candidate for Congress. On the ride home, Marshall must have wondered what he'd gotten himself into by consenting to run for Congress. Federalists only held four of Virginia's 19 House seats. What's more, the apogee of popular outrage with France 
and the accompanying fear of a French invasion was passing, and public resentment of the Alien and Sedition Acts would only increase with time, especially in his home state. On top of that, he'd already promised someone he'd support their candidacy for the Henrico County seat, so that was going to be awkward. And, jeesh, he hadn't even asked his wife. To make matters worse, it turns out that his opponent, John Clopton, wasn't a slouch either. He was from a prominent local family. He was also a veteran over the Virginia line. He was also a lawyer, a legislator, and an enigmatic public speaker. Plus, he had the incumbent's advantage. Marshall's only electoral hope was to break off moderate Republicans by distancing himself from the high Federalists of the North. To help differentiate himself, he had to make his policy views known. So, either Marshall, or someone working in concert with him, wrote a letter to the editor of the Virginia Gazette on September 19th, under the nom de plume, A Freeholder, to ask for John's opinions regarding several important campaign issues, none more important than his opinion on the Alien and Sedition Acts. In response to this question, Marshall replied the next day, I am not an advocate for the Alien and Sedition Bills. Had I been in Congress when they passed, I should certainly have opposed them, because I think them useless, and because they are calculated to create, unnecessarily, discontents and jealousies at a time when our very existence as a nation may depend on our union. Marshall went even further in distancing himself from the Federalist leadership by publicly stating that he would support their repeal and would oppose their reauthorization. A week later, out of the blue, Marshall received two letters from Secretary of State Pickering. The first was to inform him that upon the death of Justice James Wilson, President Adams had nominated him for a place in the Supreme Court. Now, don't get ahead of yourself. The second letter asked if Marshall were to decline the post, which, spoiler alert, he did, and I mean, come on, with his track record, who didn't see that coming? Did Marshall think that Bushrod Washington would accept? After notifying the secretary that he'd pass on the nomination and heartily recommending Bushrod for the seat on the bench, Marshall turned back to his campaign. It was an intense, bitter affair, of which Marshall wrote, The whole malignancy of anti-federalism has become uncommonly active. The Jacobin press, which abound with us, team with publication of which the object is to poison still further the public opinion in which are leveled, particular at me. The candidates themselves restricted their campaigning to informal glad-handing at barbecues and generally refrained from direct politicking and electioneering the way they may have a generation later. But they had subordinates and supporters who did engage in that and lucky for posterity, a great deal of the arguing took place in papers. Clopton and Marshall alike suffered barbs in the press. Marshall was the subject of a Republican polemic entitled The Letters of Curtius, which went a little something like this. Notwithstanding the magnitude of your talents, you are ridiculously awkward in the arts of dissimulation and hypocrisy. It is painful to attack a man whose talents are splendid and whose private character is amiable, but sacred duties to the cause of truth and liberty require it. You have lost forever the affection of a nation and the applause of a world. 
In vain will you pursue the thorny and rugged path that leads to fame. As the campaign wore on, it was a close thing. In January 1799, Marshall was helped substantially when he scored a major endorsement from Patrick Henry, the only other Virginian who approached Washington in terms of stature, and he let it be known in no uncertain terms that the rumor saying he supported Clopton was just that, a rumor, and that Patrick Henry was square behind John Marshall. Henry wrote glowingly of Marshall. Independently of the high gratification I felt from his public ministry to France, he ever stood high in my esteem as a private citizen. His temper and disposition were always pleasant, his talents and integrity unquestioned. These things are sufficient to place that gentleman far above any competitor in the district for Congress. But when you add the particular information and insight which he has gained and is able to communicate to our public councils, it is really astonishing that even blindness should hesitate in the choice. Neither candidate pulled away from the other during the remaining months of the campaign, and it was anybody's guess who'd win right up to Election Day, April 24, 1799. As was typical for the time and place, barrels of spirits were set up outside the polling places provided by the candidates, and voting was not done through paper ballots, but men, and only white men over the age of 21 specifically, would enter and announce his vote to an election judge. In the end, out of the five counties that comprised Virginia's 13th congressional district, Marshall won by just 114 votes. In the capital, the Federalist leadership was ambivalent about Marshall's victory. Sure, it was nice to make elective inroads into the heart of Republican country, but there were lingering and ultimately justifiable worries about whether Marshall would fall in line with party dogma. Thomas Jefferson was, of course, crestfallen by Marshall's victory, and wrote, It marks a taint in that part of the state, which I had not expected. With John's victory, the Federalists in Virginia doubled their number of House seats in the Commonwealth. Nationally, the party's victory seemed total, their advantage unassailable. They, of course, retained the presidency and a majority in the Senate, and they had increased their majority in the House by a total of 14 seats. Outwardly, they appeared full of brio and swagger, an unstoppable force. However, their electoral expansion, particularly into the Deep South, was not predicated on the high Federalist principles of the Northern leadership, but on moderates, who differed in temperament and tactics from men like Speaker of the House Theodore Sedgwick and the Senate's Rufus King. No, they were Southern Federalists, who would fall in line behind the representative from the Virginia 13th. These were moderates, who would follow John Marshall. Okay, this is where we're going to leave off today. This episode was sort of a throwback to our more manageable 20 to 30 minute episodes, which the density of the Marshall story as of late has made it impossible to do. And we'll see how long we can stick to this, because these episodes are easier to research, write, and record and edit. And now just a few quick announcements before we go. The Agora Podcast of the Month is a two-for-one. It's David Crowther's excellent and incredibly popular History of England 
and history of Anglo-Saxon England podcasts. Subscribe to the Agora feed and don't miss my interview with David on the next episode of The Exchange, which is currently on the editing room floor and should be out soon. Now, you can still find our PayPal donate button at www.americanbiography.webs.com, but now there's also another way you can support the show. You can now subscribe to our new Patreon page. Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash ambio. That's A-M-B-I-O. And you can sign up to make an automatic donation for whatever amount you choose for every episode that comes out. Subscribers at any level will be eligible for bonus episodes that I'm currently working on, but will only be released to patrons and not on the regular RSS feed. These episodes will usually be tangential to the main narrative and focus on things that I found incredibly interesting, but just couldn't fit into the main narrative. And I think these will make a nice little reward for your generous support. But as we all know, not all support needs to be financial. And if you'd like to help the show another way, please consider writing an iTunes review or sharing our Facebook page or following me on Twitter at American underscore bio to help spread the word. And finally, your feedback is also really important to me. So if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact me at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. All right. That's all for this time. Thanks everybody for listening, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.